Today is the most awaited session of the year, which is the analysis on the finance bill. We are we are very very grateful to our learned faculty for the day, C. A. Gautam Doshi, for gracing this occasion and showing his willingness to share with us the knowledge that he has gathered on the finance bill. Just a little take on the finance bill or the budget that. it looks like a new age budget where even the finance bill captures several evolving areas the other thing that we see is also that the allocation has also seen a major change a major shift and uh, there is a big bet which is laid on the manufacturing uh, sector you know pushing the economy so that's another very big bet which is there in the budget then we have to see how it pans out but definitely in the long run it might be a good idea so in the finance bill we see that there are several changes which have been brought about just to plug the holes which were there earlier but of course i don't want to say anything more we have such a learned faculty with us and i would just request our chairman first to share his thoughts on this occasion and then with this we take it forward really it's a privilege to introduce gautam bhai and you know we've been lucky enough to have his wisdom every time that direct tax or any other thing that taxation comes into picture So we are thankful to you, Gautam Bhai, for accepting this invitation of ours and doing this, of course, virtually. We would have loved to hear you in that open auditorium setup. But so moving on, friends, Gautam Bhai, fondly called Gautam Bhai, Gautam Doshi Sir, a chartered accountant and masters in commerce for over 45 years in practice, advises various industrial groups and families, and also serves as an independent director on boards of leading public listed. Has an experience in wide range of areas, M&A, indirect, international tax, transfer pricing. accounting corporate and commercial laws has been actively involved in conceptualizing and implementing a number of mergers and restructuring transactions both domestic and cross border involving many of the top 20 listed companies on the bse as those found part of ftse 100 a prolific speaker mr doshi has addressed several seminars in the endless tours that he has already addressed and many students like us whom he has been inspiring may i request all of you to please put your hands together and please welcome gautam bhai in this uh, wonderful gathering good evening everybody Chairman WRC, Trustee, Secretary WRC, ladies and gentlemen, I'm obliged to WRC for giving me this opportunity year after year, which enables me to study the finance bill and be, of course, to share whatever little one understands of it with the audience. It's very difficult to understand generally what exactly is being proposed through the finance bill. This year also the budget. as drashti mentioned earlier i think in a sense part breaking the extraordinary investment on capex the amount which we are going to spend the manner in which it is going to be spent way in which the economy is expected to progress i think is very significant and therefore to that extent the budget is great but on the other hand when it comes to the finance bill the position is a little more troublesome it continues to reflect an approach we have to work as a public to get the government to believe us and trust us because as things are it seems like the government does not believe and trust us because the approach which one finds in this is one of mistrust to an extent it is an attempt at times to punish like the additional tax 
It's petty in areas like, for example, the amendment on Section 201 or 206C, where all that the government is saying is, if we pass an order, you must obey it. But in any case, you must obey the order. You don't need an amendment to say that. And yet they are saying this, which clearly shows, and that too on what? On a matter of computation of interest on amounts in default, not even on the amount in default and its payment. So something which is, in that sense, meaningless, something where the act is being used, as in the past, we have consistently been told, and now the Income Tax Act is meant to be for the income tax and not for other purposes, but continues to be used for other purposes. For example, what are you really trying to do? You have about seven, eight pages of the explanatory memorandum telling you how, what the Medical Council of India is saying is not perhaps being observed by the pharma companies and by the doctors. The Medical Council is dealing with doctors, not with pharma companies. But that's what the government feels. So the Medical Council to enforce their law, they have enough power. But instead of that, the Income Tax Act is being amended to try and govern that. The sections which are being introduced, again, no real attempt is being made to deal with that. Take a section like 194 R or 194 S. You have to deduct tax at source on a benefit or a perquisite, whether convertible into money or not. Something on which there has been consistent litigation until now, in a sense, there is no clarity as to what exactly this phrase covers. Going by the Supreme Court's decision in Mahindra, it cannot cover cash payment. Going by some other decisions, there is no clarity on what is a benefit. But the Supreme Court accepted that an interest-free loan is not chargeable under Section 17. The Act was then amended to make it chargeable. That's another matter. So what exactly is a benefit or perquisite, whether convertible into money or not? It's fine for an assessing officer to assess it. Is it fine for every person who's dealing with others in various, in, who are also in business to imagine whether what he's doing amounts to a benefit to the other man and should he therefore deduct tax on it? For example, if he's buying goods worth 100 at 90 because you give a discount for selling the goods, is that 10 rupee a benefit to him? Undoubtedly, it is a benefit. Because you are giving a discount which you have not given to anybody else. On the other hand, you are giving a benefit because you need to dispose of your goods. You have to sell them and it's part of your business. Would you have to deduct tax at source on that? I don't think one can answer. The better answer is no. Such a benefit or perquisite is covered in the normal computation of income of the buyer. If he buys at 90 and then carries out his business, he's bound to show the additional profit of 10 and pay tax on it. It is not a benefit or perquisite, chargeable under 28.4, and therefore not something on which one should deduct tax under 194R. But I'm not sure that this is necessarily the correct interpretation. What I'm trying to say is such complex sections and that difficulty is left to the assessee to resolve. And a continued attempt to do retrospective amendments. Last year, you had three 
retrospective amendments, if one may put it that way, dealing with goodwill, dealing with 50B, and so on. I did not see the business community and the profession protesting enough. In a sense, retrospective amendments, because after the year was nearly over, after 10 months, you are told that you will not get depreciation on goodwill. Or you are told that your computation of a slum sale price will be done in a different manner. And that continues this year. You are now told after 10 months are over that under Section 37, your disallowance will be very different from what it was at the beginning of the year. Or you are told that on an item like says you will face a disallowance. In fact, this is from 2005 onwards. So a government which has told us that we will not make retrospective amendments and told us through parliament, made that observation continuously. So in a sense, a solemn word which the government has given, and they go back on it by saying it's not retrospective because it applies to the income of the current year. But if you make a law in respect of the income of the current year, 10 months after the year is over, or 10 months in the year, then undoubtedly it is retrospective. So it is something which one has to consider. So the approach in the finance bill continues to be one which, with great respect, one may say, disregards the assessee and the public as somebody who is bound, whatever we tell them, who does not really have a voice. But anyhow, that's what we have. We do have a few petty benefits, like the COVID and the IFSC benefits, but those are not really worth talking about. And the other point, which we have been consistently saying, is this finance bill also touches, as usual, almost, if you need to touch 50 subjects, then it should be a taxation loss amendment act which can be separately budgeted in parliament, dealt with, and on which public and MPs will have time to react. Trying to do it in the finance bill effectively is doing it on the barrel of a gun. Because as an MP, you cannot question the provisions of the finance bill. Because if you do that, you are taking the risk of questioning the government itself. So really, you have no choice but to pass the finance bill. And if in that process, you are covered with another 50 amendments, which some of which are good, some of which are bad, some of which are indifferent, there's nothing which you can do about them. That is the difficulty. The government, the speech of the finance minister keeps on saying that the government is committed to, and that it is repeated this time, a stable tax policy. A stable tax policy can't have 50 subjects which are amended every year. That's not a stable tax policy. Merely because the tax rates are consistent does not make it a stable tax policy. The computation of tax is as important as the tax rates. The other point which the finance minister tells us that they trust assesses and the whole purpose of the finance bill is to build the trust between the government and the assesses. And as we discuss, we will see whether that is really being achieved or not being achieved. But coming before now, turning to the specific provisions, and I think the first thing which we must deal with is the one very welcome provision, which is the exemption being given for payments arising out of COVID 
the illness and the demise of many of us who have been unfortunate in that process. It has been, the pandemic is an unfortunate event. It has created tremendous difficulty for the country and amongst the few alleviating features in a number of cases, either employers, either government, either trusts have come forward and helped people who are in difficulty, either by meeting their medical expenses and where unfortunately it has led to a demise by trying to compensate in money terms. Money can never really compensate for a life, but trying to compensate in money terms for the people who have lost their lives. And government had said earlier that these payments would be exempt. And that's exactly what the section is trying to say, is making clear by amending two sections, 17 and 56. Effectively, there are two parts to it. If medical treatment costs, then that is exempt. If one has received that, and it could come from an employer, it could come from other sources. And the second part is, if somebody has suffered a demise, then any family member who has received assistance as a result of that can also claim exemption on the amounts received. What is received from the employer is exempt without any limit. What is received from others has a limit of 10 lakhs. If the exemption for what one receives from charitable trusts continues, so if those others are charitable trusts, then this limit of 10 lakhs will not apply. If that other is a non-charitable trust, then one still has this limit of 10 lakhs, which will apply. In either case, a time limit has been introduced that this payment should be within 12 months of the demise. But on the other hand, in a number of cases, one has found that payments may be different. They may start within that 12-month period, but there are employers who have said, we'll continue to pay the salary which that person would have earned for the rest of his life. I mean, these are also types of payments which people conceive. One of the major reasons why that is conceived is that a lump sum may get used up, may get wasted, may even get effectively confiscated by others, non-family members or family members, therefore not reach the right people. A recurring payment will make sure that benefit is available. These recurring payments would, however, if they amount to annuities, and to my mind, they would amount to annuities, would then be taxable. So therefore, if they are recurring payments beyond 12 months, these, those will continue to remain taxable. And as far as this is concerned, you have a definition of family, which is standard spouse, children, and parents, brothers, sisters, only if they are dependent. But then the person paying can easily pay the spouse or the children where that rule about being dependent is not brought in. Because dependent is a very difficult word to construe. It's not very difficult, necessary to construe in a number of situations. Therefore, one is not really bothered about it. But if you are concerned with an exemption of this nature, you may come into conflict to decide who's dependent. Father who's getting a pension is technically perhaps in a position to look after himself. But on the other hand, his quality of life may be very different if his son is alive and is also earning a salary and is contributing to the household as compared to what he can do 
if he has to live only on his pension? Would you say he's dependent? If you say he's not dependent, then the payment he made to him by the employer will become taxable. If on the other hand you say he's dependent, it will not be taxable. Technically, I don't think you can say he's dependent because he's getting a pension which perhaps is enough to pay for a basic quality of life, though not for the lifestyle to which he's used. So things like this are going to require further guidelines, further notifications, further clarifications, because I don't think the intention is to really tax in all such cases. So perhaps if they are not put in the condition about parents, brothers, sisters being dependent, it would have been far better. Perhaps even now that condition can be deleted because you don't really want disputes in an area like this. The major change is virtual digital assets. A new concept, a totally foreign concept till a few years back, but something which has now become a part of life. One was not sure till some time back whether the regulators and the government treat this as something which is legal or illegal and will to consider this type of assets and dealing in them and transacting in them as desirable or undesirable. At some stage, the Reserve Bank indicated that it would ban. Even now, there is an indication that there will be some regulation of these transactions. What type of dealing is permitted and what type of dealing is undesirable? The question is, is it something which is not good for the economy because you are dealing with something which perhaps has no inherent value of its own and just passing entries and making transactions? And therefore, is that a desirable thing? On the other hand, it's an innovation which makes life easier. A digital currency is so much easier to use than a physical currency. And therefore, it is an innovation which is something which has to be brought in. It is an innovation which provides for security. A virtual digital asset obtained by cryptography, by the blockchain concept, is something which can't be forged, something which can't be duplicated, something which can't be perhaps even stolen. So therefore, you are now talking about an asset in which respect of which you are not worried about it being lost, stolen, taken away, or copied and somebody else using a duplicate thereof. So it's a very desirable thing. So it's both. And that is why government is considering what type of regulation to bring in and how. But in the meantime, we now have a definition, at least for the purpose of the tax law. The definition is not without difficulty. It is a very wide definition. It talks of four things, information, code, number, or token, being a concept which one was not used to. One doesn't fully understand the difference between these, what situations, which one will apply. But all of them together would go into the digital asset. The question has been raised, for example, also, do you need both the words virtual and digital? The definition section refers to virtual digital asset. But the body of the section refers only to digital asset. And it's enough to refer to digital asset. Whether virtual is required or not is itself an open issue. So we are going to have this. I think a lot of these issues which one is concerned with in the section will get clarified through notifications. Because effectively the section, the definition says, a virtual digital asset is comprised, as I said, of one of these four things information code number or token, when it has one of these three qualities, it is either a digital representation of value 
or is a store of value or a unit of account. If it is one of these three things, in addition to being one of those four things, then it is a virtual digital asset, not otherwise. But what you are further told is, government has the power to notify things which are virtual digital assets and to notify non-fund tokens as virtual digital assets and the power to notify those items which satisfy this definition but are to be kept out. A question has been raised by a number of people. For example, this definition, a token which has got inherent value, may be answered by the credit for an airline mile. It is a token. It has got inherent value because it would entitle you to travel or entitle you to obtain an airline ticket. That is what the airline provides. Is it really intended that transactions in these airline miles are also to be charged? Till today, they have not been charged. And I'm doubtful whether they are intended to be charged. They are on personal account. If they make a significant profit, I think they would be chargeable. They would be chargeable under 45. And if they don't make a significant profit, they would not be chargeable. But I'm not sure that one is intending to charge things like that through this amendment for virtual digital assets. One really wants to charge what are called cryptocurrencies and not really most of the other things. Things like Bitcoins and Ethereum and things like that, and not a variety of other assets. So it is the notifications which will tell us really what is included and what is excluded. And I'm assuming that we will have notifications and guidelines which will take us down this path. And because this part of the section is coming from next year, we have time enough to wait. I'm clarifying this part of the section because a transaction in a cryptocurrency is a transaction. And if that transaction results in income, even today it is taxable. And if that transaction results in a loss, even today it should be allowed. How it should be taxed, in what manner it should be taxed, the normal provisions of the act, I think, are adequate to cover it, but they are not adequate to cover all the special features of such a currency. And that is the reason why we have a special section coming in for it. But otherwise, they are there. So if it is a trading transaction, if one is a trader in currency, it would be business. If one is an investor, it would be a capital asset giving rise to a capital gain or a capital loss. It's a question mark in my mind whether one can ever be an investor. Because one of the traditional concepts from a tax law has been that it to be a subject matter of investment, for it to be a capital asset and not an asset acquired for trading, not an asset acquired for business. It must be an asset which you hold either to earn an income or to use in the course of your lifestyle, for example, a house, a car, etc., or a loan from which you're going to earn interest or dividends, or something which gives you pride of possession, like a painting, something which is a store, like gold, because that also gives you pride of possession along with that. But something which you buy only with the objective of reselling is perhaps intended to be a trading asset and should be dealt with as a trading asset. If that view is taken, then perhaps it can never be a capital gain. But after considering the definition as introduced 
or proposed to be introduced by the finance bill, it's very clear, I would think, that this is not the view which is shared by the government and by the regulators. They have referred to the virtual digital asset as being mode of accounting for investments. They are treating it as a possible source of investment. They are talking about a cost of acquisition. They are talking about income arising from a transfer of a virtual digital asset. And therefore, the treatment suggests that the government and the regulator are willing to treat it as a capital asset and not necessarily as only being the subject matter of either a business or an adventure in the nature of trade. So that problem may not arise. You should be able to claim the income either as business income or as capital gain. But even today's income will be taxed, tomorrow's income will be taxed. As far as tomorrow's income is concerned, April 22 onwards, taxable in April 23, the one major difference which will arise is that today you have to consider which head of income is active. Because only then can you compute the income and you can apply the rules of computation relating to that head of income, relating either to business or to capital gains. After 115 BBH comes into force, thereafter you don't have to worry about the head of income. Irrespective of the head of income, the same income will be taxed at the same rate, 30%. So the head of income goes away. More and more, we are seeing this trend. A lot of headless income, if one may put it that way. The concept, of course, originally of Section 14, and it continues to be there, is that income must fall under one of the five heads. If it is not one of those five heads, it is not taxable. So something which is, for example, could be income from house property, but is not covered by the computation provisions of house property, cannot then be taxed because it is not falling into any of the five heads. So that is the law. So it would be outside. Now we do have sections 115B, BB, AB, all of them dealing with different forms of headless income. A charitable trust having extra income under 115 BBI will be taxed there at a fixed rate. A cryptograph virtual digital asset yielding income will be taxed at a fixed rate under BBH. So more and more this concept is coming through that headless income is being charged, or rather income is being charged without trying to classify it under a head. It's only for simplicity, only for convenience, but simplicity and convenience where 30 different items are to be taxed without a head, and then the rest is to be classified into heads, is also equally complex and difficult to comply with as trying to classify those 30 items into heads and apply the computational provisions. One of the key features is of most of these headless income is that there will be no set-off of losses, and in this case, not even of expenditure not just losses, except cost of acquisition. Cost of acquisition is going to remain there for a difficult area. Very simple, one would think if one is purchasing, the cost which one is paying for purchase. But what about associated costs? What about an exchange rate difference? 
if you are buying it in foreign currency? Will that be part of the cost of acquisition? I think ultimately, yes. The cost of acquisition is what it finally costs your pocket in rupees. So even that should come in. If cost of acquisition is allowed, all other expenses will not be allowed. That is the effect of what it says. And if you have made losses in business, you still have to pay tax at 30% on the income from virtual digital assets because you can't set off other losses against this. And if you have made losses on virtual digital assets, you will not be able to use that loss to reduce your business income or your salary income or your house property income. This loss will be useless. And because it is not allowed to be carried forward, it will virtually be useless for all times to come. It's a dead loss. So that punishment to make it a dead loss is called for is something which I think is an open question. One should perhaps go back. That yes, once should it, this is an area which needs regulation. But once regulated, the losses should be allowed. Should be at least allowed to carry forward and set off against income under the same item in the future. To totally disallow carry forward, maybe perhaps a bit too much. Some complex questions will arise about which head is this finally taxable under? It's not, as I said, material to the computation. It's not material to the computation of tax. But it is material if there are exemptions or exclusions from that head. Will those exemptions or exclusions also be applicable to this income? For example, can 54F be claimed on income from a virtual digital asset which has been held for more than three years? It will become long-term only after three years. Rules for shares, securities, some assets which make it within 12 months, some immobile property which is within 24 months, all will not apply. The three-year rule will apply. It will be long-term at that point. But let's say you have been holding a virtual asset for more than three years and you then make a profit on it. Can you claim that a part of it is exempt, a part of it is not chargeable? Because you have reinvested that amount into buying a house and claim an exemption under 54F, or because you have invested a part of it in putting it to certain bonds which are prescribed or specified, and therefore you are exempt under 54E, can you possibly claim the exemption? I think the answer seems to be yes if it is capital gains. And as I said, the way one reads the finance bill, it seems to accept that it can be a capital asset, giving rise to capital gains. And consequently, it should be possible to claim this. Does it form part of gross total income? This income, taxable at a spatial rate, but is it part of gross total income? The answer again, perhaps, is yes. And if it is, then it will help you in claiming deductions. For example, the ATG deduction is linked to the quantum of gross total income. And therefore, if it is part of your gross total income, the ATG deduction can be higher to that extent. So therefore, it is headless income, but not really headless. Only thing is you have to discover the head. And after discovering the head, you can claim certain benefits if they are associated with that head. 56 to 10 will also apply to this income, namely if somebody gifts a virtual digital asset to you, and if the total value of that gift is more than 50,000, then that will be taxable in the hands of the recipient. 
crypto asset worth 1000 rupees given to you at 200 rupees is a gift of 800 so that gift will also be included the issue is what is the value how do you say it's worth 1000 that is going to remain a very difficult issue because one understands that this asset has a very volatile valuation valuation differs from day to day and perhaps from hour to hour and where you can find the value, where you can know that this is the price which is quoted or listed for this item. So the price discovery is very, very uncertain. If you have 40, 50 different exchanges, which exchange will you use for the purpose of price discovery? And then you are talking 40, 50 only in one country. If you are taking the world together, then the number of exchanges is innumerable virtually. So how will you really determine the value of this asset? That's something on which, again, one expects to find rules. The difficulty is when it comes to Section 56, do they have the power to prescribe rules for this asset? The way in which the amendment has been made, because it has not amended the definition of property in the explanation to 5627, but has put it in the explanation to 5610, and the power to notify valuation rules is only there in respect of 5627 and not in respect of 56210 until government takes an additional power to notify valuation rules. We may not have valuation rules on this subject. I'm sure they will take that additional power. Until they take an additional power, they can give a guideline and a guideline may become a basis which most people will be able to follow. There is a TDS on this income, and that's going to be very difficult also to implement. That's what I mentioned at the beginning. How do you implement a 194R in a matter like this, where sometimes you can't identify who is your buyer? You have to analyze contracts and understand. Are you selling to the broker, the broker selling to the exchange, the exchange selling to the buyer? Are there three transactions? Are there four transactions? Or is it that you are selling and the buyer is buying and the others are mere intermediaries and they don't get property of that particular item in the meantime? How exactly does it move? The asset moves from your account, perhaps to the account of the broker, to the account somewhere in the exchange, to the account of the broker of the buyer, to the buyer. And if that is the way it moves from so many accounts, is the moment it enters an account, does it amount to ownership? then are we saying there are so many transactions? Then will 1% have to be deducted every time? Therefore, in a one sale and purchase, will you really be talking about a 5% withholding or a 1% withholding? That's not very clear. Again, we would wait for some notification, some guideline on this aspect. See, in a normal stock exchange, it is clear. Your broker does not take ownership of the shares. He only receives the shares from you, passes them on to the exchange. The exchange does not take ownership of the shares. The exchange only passes it on to the buyer. So there the rules are clear. Here the rules are not clear. Because I also understand, I'm told that there can be variations in the pricing. In the sense that if you give it to your broker, the broker can add his brokerage and then give it to the exchange or things like that. He doesn't have ownership. How can 100 become 101? Then the 100 should be passed through clean. 
and the fees and the brokerage should be separately charged. But here I'm told at times it is not separately charged, it's added to the value. If it's added to the value, then clearly it seems to be multiple transactions. So there is a TDS of 1%, which is going to be difficult. And the second difficulty is cases where it is paid in kind. If there is payment in kind, in the sense that a Bitcoin is exchanged for an Ethereum piece, now in that case, you still have TDS. You can't do TDS because there is no cash passing. You are now told that you need to ensure that tax is paid on the transaction. But how do you ensure that? Because tax is payable at the end of the year when income is determined and the return is filed, not till then. Whereas the transaction is happening today. And how do you determine the amount of tax which is really payable? Is it meant to be that you have to ensure that 1% is paid? Or do you have to ensure that the full tax is paid? The full tax is 30% on the profits. But on the profit, it depends on the cost of the seller. One doesn't know his cost. How does one ascertain his cost? And how does therefore one ascertain how much tax he has to pay? It's a difficult proposition. I'm sure there will be some modification. They will have to clarify this. There is a similar provision today in the context of lotteries. If you, are, if you win a lottery in kind, you win a car, you can't receive the car till you have paid the tax on the car. And today, the way in which it is implemented is the full tax is made payable. Because the TDS in any case, in that case, is on the full tax amount. So you have to try and work out what is your total income, you have to work out the full amount of tax at 30% or 33% or whatever be the rate and then pay that. So that is the rate at which it becomes payable there. If that is true even in the context of virtual digital assets, then in terms of cash flow, life will be much more difficult because the entire tax will be paid in a number of installments over time if one keeps on exchanging as opposed to selling and encashing. 